Please be seated. <clears throat> We're continuing uh, along in our time with Paul's letter to the Philippians, and um, many of you will be very happy to know that we have made it out of chapter 1, and we are into chapter 2 now, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let's come now before God's Word and give our attention to its reading. This is God's Word. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's come now before our God and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have given to your people your word, that you have not left us in the dark, but that you have given us a light for our feet. We come before you this morning and we acknowledge that we all come this morning from a number of different places. Some of us anxious about the week previous and others anxious about the week that is to come. Some of us this morning feel very much in need to hear you speak, even just a word that they might continue going throughout the next week. And there are still those that come this morning and find themselves skeptical, wondering if this good news of the Lord Jesus Christ can can really be true. And still there, there are those that come this morning very confident that they are found pleasing and acceptable only for the blood of Jesus. Father, for all of us and from all the different places that we come this morning, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would reveal to us this morning how sinful we really are, how broken we really are, how desperately needy we are of your work in our lives. We pray that you would not only reveal to us our sinfulness, not only that you would break us before your word, but also that you would bind us up with it, that you would comfort us, that you would show us this morning the Lord Jesus and remind us again of how we are loved by you because of his work, because of what he did for us on the cross. It's in his name that we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, the other week, um, I was standing be- behind someone in the grocery store, and, uh, and I saw something that I, I've never seen before. It was at least the first time I've seen it. Um, you know, you're standing in line, and 
you, you pay cash for your items, whatever they are, and sometimes you'll use like a $20 bill or if you're blessed enough to carry $100 bills, maybe you'll, you'll pay with that. But the cashier takes it out when you hand it to them and they, you know how they hold it up to the light and they, they look through the bill and, you know, I guess they're looking for that little line through the paper or, or whatever is there and, uh, you know, this rigorous inspection of counterfeit bills that takes place at Kroger. And, um, and well, this guy in front of me, he, he went to pay and he took out his 20 or whatever it was and uh, the cashier held it up to the light and looked at it and then handed it back to him and said, uh, I can't accept this. This isn't a, a real $20 bill or whatever it was. And, and the guy was a little upset, but, you know, eventually he just took out another bill and paid for it and everything was fine. And I, I was just thinking, no way that just happened. I, I've never seen that happen. They've always checked my bills, the bills of people in front of me. It, it was the first time I'd ever seen that happen. And, you know, I was thinking, I guess they're actually doing something when they do that. I, I, I didn't even know that. But, um, you know, when they're... They're looking at the bill, you know, they're saying, I'm looking at it to see if it's the, the real thing, if it's authentic, if it's, if it's genuine. They're, they're saying, basically, you know, when they approve it, they're saying, I can accept this. This is, this is the real thing. And, you know, Jesus, before he's arrested and before he's handed over to be crucified, he's, he's found praying. And John records Jesus' prayer in his gospel, and Jesus is praying for the church, and he prays this to his father. He says, "My prayer is not for them alone." And there he's speaking of the disciples. He says, "I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, and that that would be us." This is what he prays: that all of them may be one. He goes on, "Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they be brought to complete unity." And listen to this, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I mean, he's he's praying that the world would be able to look at the church and see unity. He is praying that the church would be held up to the light and to be found to be one with one another. And that unity says to the world, the gospel is for real. It is absolutely authentic and genuine. Why? Because only the gospel can create real, authentic, and genuine unity. You see, the gospel is the the great equalizer. I mean, it says to all of us, no matter who we are, that we are all broken, that we are all unable to fix ourselves, and that we are only accepted because of the person of Jesus and his work. Only the gospel, only the gospel can create this kind of unity, that it can take the wealthy and the poor, the wise and the foolish, the black and the white, the ugly and the beautiful people with all kinds of different backgrounds and bring them together and unite them. See, in this passage, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he's saying this to them very simply, be one in the church. And so I want us to see that we are called to this unity, but also the reasons that we have for being one. And and finally, I hope to be practical and and to talk to us about how we can actually pursue that, that unity. 
So I'm going to take these verses out of order and actually start with verse 2 of the verses that we read. And the reason I'm doing this is because I want us to see up front really what Paul is talking about in these verses. And so we see in verse 2 that we are called to be one. And that's the first point. He writes in verse 2, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And he's saying, here's what's going to make me happy. People at Philippi, church at Philippi, it is for you to have one mind, one love, one spirit, and one purpose. You know, I think some of us, we hear, probably hear this call to unity, and we picture, you know, we get in our mind's eye this picture of, you know, a group of people all holding hands and they're swaying back and forth and they're singing kumbaya like 30 times in a row, you know, until we've generated this, you know, nice, warm, fuzzy feeling about one another. But look, Paul is, he's obviously talking about something much deeper than that. And the unity that the Bible is calling us to And the unity that the Bible would be talking about, it's not a self-generated, it's not a manufactured or a manipulated thing. According to the Bible, this unity is to penetrate us to the core, really dealing with our minds, our motives, and our goals. Still, I think that would probably be easy for a lot of us this morning to think, think to ourselves, you know, I know the kind of people he's talking about. Um, Thank goodness I'm not that person, Um, you know, or we're not like that. But I I need you to remember that, that of all the letters that Paul wrote, and he wrote more than any other writer in the New Testament, of all the churches that Paul wrote to, he is the most pleased with this church at Philippi. I mean, you read through this letter from beginning to end, and you come away thinking, This is actually a healthy church. Not all the churches Paul wrote to were healthy, but this is a healthy church. And he says to the healthiest of all these churches, pursue unity. Because I think Paul understands something about our sinful hearts, that we all have a tendency to move away from it and not towards it. You see in these verses how total and encompassing our unity is to be. And so we read in verse 2 that our call has to be one has to do with our minds. That the church isn't a group that gathers together and somehow forms and shapes truth. Paul is really saying that the church is a group that is, is together formed and shaped by truth. And in this way, Paul would be saying that, That the truth does not divide us, but it really brings us together and unites us. And we're to have one love in our care and concern for one another. We're to find ourselves caring deeply for one another in in the same measure that Jesus has loved us. When Paul says that we're to be one in spirit, he's saying that there is to be something of an inner harmony among the followers of Jesus. You know, of course, there's, there's going to be you know, unique gifts and personalities and roles to play in the church. But Paul is really simply saying that we are to be in sync with one another in all of these things, that we are to be driven by the same Spirit, and we're to have one purpose, he says. That is, we're to be moving together in pursuit of the same thing, moving in the same direction. We're to be longing for the enjoyment and glory of God through His gospel. Now, I know that we're simply flying through all these things, but... You really don't want to miss the forest for the trees here. I mean, the call is simply this, that in the church, we are to be united and we are to be one. Now, although my, my main goal in this first point is really to say, 
That's it. That is our call. I think that we can possibly begin making some application to at least say this. Unity in the church is worked out in relationships. Um, Like-mindedness, the same love, spirit, and purpose. It's really, it has to be fleshed out in our relationships with one another. I mean, this means that we cannot be one unless we know each other and are involved in one another's lives. And because this unity is deep, I think this is saying that in each other's lives, we are required to move past the surface stuff and into the heart matters with one another. You know, when God talks about marriage, you see a similar call to oneness or unity. You know, in marriage, the two people become one. And the metaphor we understand involves far more than just the physical. It's a spiritual, emotional, and social, and intellectual oneness that the Bible's talking about. The unity is to be deep and total, right? In that unity, we don't we don't stop being who we are as individuals. We don't, st- we don't all of a sudden lose our unique personalities, giftedness, and talents, and so forth. But the unity in a marriage God is talking about move- is-, is something that's moving us in the same direction. That we're to be in sync with one another. That we're to have the same love, same mind, and so forth. But that kind of unity, you understand this if you're married. <laughs> that kind of unity is not magical. I mean, you don't just stand up in front of the preacher and say, we say our I do's, bam, we're one in all of these different areas. It really takes a lot of work. I mean, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of time. I mean, if you're married, you know that. It involves moving beyond the surface stuff towards deeply knowing one another. See, you see this unity that Paul is calling the Philippians to and calling our church to as well is something that does take real and significant effort. I'm saying this to you this morning. To have this kind of unity, you have to be intentional about it. You have to strive after this in your relationships because you tend to move away from it. And that means that you and I need to pursue knowing one another. That means that you need to talk to one another. It means that you need to share with one another. Not just the good things, but also the struggles. That you need to invite somebody over to your home for a meal. I mean, but this means praying for one another. This means hurting with one another and rejoicing with one another. This unity requires that we are involved in one another's lives. Well, that said, I want us to go back to verse 1 for our second point because... It's really in verse 1 that Paul gives the reasons for pursuing this unity. You see, it's not that God just says, Christians, be one, and, you know, good luck with that. You know, just leaves it at that. He says that there are real reasons that you and I are to be pursuing this oneness in the body of Christ. Verse 1, he writes, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... Then make my joy complete by being like-minded and so on. You know, the word if um, at the beginning of that verse is a little misleading because it's a word that should actually be translated because or since. You see, Paul's not asking a question. He's making a statement. He's saying this, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you have experienced all of these things. 
You know what it means to be encouraged from being united to Christ. And that encouragement comes from knowing that your salvation does not rest on you, but rests on Jesus. That your Father in heaven is pleased with you because He is pleased with His Son Jesus in your place. You know what it means to be comforted from His love. A love that is completely unconditional. That your Father in heaven is pleased with you. Again, because He is pleased with what His Son has done in your place. You know what it means to, be, to have fellowship in the Spirit. We are given the Spirit as believers. And he's saying you've, you've experienced His activity in your life. You know of this. You know how He has created in you. In the midst of all of your struggles, a desire for righteousness, a desire to grow in love for Jesus and to put sin to death in your life. He's saying you've experienced those things by the work of the Spirit. And you know what it means to have experienced the tenderness and compassion of Jesus. That you've seen His mercy at work in your life. Your evidence of His compassion. That He would reach down into your sinful estate and into your misery and bring you redemption. If I fail to make this clear, what you find in verse 1 is that Paul is heaping up descriptions of what we all have in the gospel. I mean, he's saying, because of Jesus, you have these things in common. He's simply saying the fruit of the gospel worked out in our relationships in the church is unity with one another. Who we are in Jesus affects who we are with one another. This isn't a bear called a unity. He's saying unity is the fruit of a life changed by Jesus. You know, last spring or and summer, Jennifer and I, we planted a garden in our backyard and broccoli, beans, corn, all the fun stuff. Um, and when I would come home from work, I would take uh, my son William and my daughter Kennedy out to the to the garden. You know, every day it was our routine. I would come home from work. I would say hi. I would kiss everyone hello. And then I'd say, y'all ready to go see the garden? We'll go look at the garden. And, uh, and we'd walk out there and we'd, we'd see what had changed from the previous day. And uh, when you do that every day, sometimes the, the growth is a little bit slow. Uh, everything looks the same. Um, but if there was anything to pick, you know, we would, we would pick it. Um, and they would help me water the garden, you know. And, um, you know, a garden is such a, such a simple thing. I mean, once you have picked out the place to do it and planted the, uh, the plants, the vegetables, whatever you're growing, I mean, pretty much it's a matter of watering it and watching it. I mean, feeding it and watching the growth that takes place. And slowly but surely it does. And you see the corn come up and the beans and all that kind of stuff. And I guess what I'm saying is that the fruit of being saturated with the gospel, Paul is saying. I mean, the fruit of our soaking in our union with Christ, the comfort of His love, the fellowship with the Spirit, the tenderness and compassion that we have received from Jesus, the fruit of being watered in the gospel, Paul is saying, is unity in the church. Because the playing field is leveled at the foot of the cross. I mean, we all find ourselves debtors, to God's grace. 
You see, it isn't a trivial thing like race or social status or personality that brings us together. Paul is saying we are family because we share in the blood of Jesus. And really, that is what brings us together. You see, he's saying the cross shatters your divisions and creates a unity that cannot be manufactured or manipulated because it all has to do with the grace that we have found in the Lord Jesus. Well, we come to our final point, and I do hope that we can be very practical here because the final point is simply this. How to be one. I mean, Paul is saying this is what you're called to. This is why you are to be one and to pursue this unity. And finally, he says something about how to do it. And this is what he says in verses 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so here's the how-to. Very, very practical stuff from the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's saying there are some things you need to stop doing. There are some things you need to start doing. Very practical stuff. He says, stop doing things out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And in this verse, I really think that he is saying, our selfish ambitions in life flow out of our vain conceit. You see, vain conceit is probably not the best translation here. Beginning to (laughs) retranslating the NIV this morning. Um, But... The word that's actually used there is kenodoxion. And doxa in that word is a word for glory. I mean, we sing the doxology, right? We sing glory to God. And the King James Version, I think, actually translates it best when it talks about vain glory. So why is all this important? Here's what Paul is saying. Stop being so selfish, And trying to glorify yourself. Why would we be tempted to bring glory to ourselves? See, I want to suggest that we all desperately want to matter. I mean, we want to prove, not not even so much to the people around us, but to ourselves that we matter. That we're important that we're significant, that we have worth. I mean, that's what's all behind this word glory. A couple of years ago, I came across a very interesting quote from Madonna. (laughs) Madonna's probably not going to get quoted in this pulpit very much, but um, what she says in this quote is is pretty insightful. She, She says this about herself. I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and have discovered myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of it again and again. She says this, My drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. That's always been pushing me, pushing me, Because even though I have already become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and probably never will. Now, I hope you catch what she's saying in this quote. Because she's saying, I don't operate out of a fear 
of being bad or horrible. She's saying, I operate out of a fear of being insignificant, of not mattering, of being mediocre. I mean, what scares her is that she might not matter. And I'm venturing a guess that if you know yourself well, you know that that same fear drives you in deeper and more profound ways than even you know. See, our selfish ambitions really are the symptoms of this problem. That we are always trying to say, I matter, I'm significant, I'm important. In that quote, you sense Madonna feels the slavery of this. I mean, she says it's a struggle that has never ended and probably never will. That's slavery. And I want to tell you this morning, I want you to understand that verse 1 of our passage is the only way you can get free of that desperate feeling of having to prove yourself and to prove that you matter. Because verse 1 is saying that your worth and your significance, your glory, is found in that Jesus died for you. That the Son of God came to this earth, was born in a manger, lived and died in your place. He brought you fellowship of the Spirit, He tenderness and compassion. You cannot stop the vain glory and selfish ambition until you start seeing who you are in the gospel. And who you are sets you free to actually be humble and to look out for the interests of others. And that's exactly where Paul is going with all of this. Here's what you need to start doing, he says. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. And in the next verse, look out for the interests of others. You know, most of us, most of us think that the way you get humility is by thinking badly enough about yourself. You know, if I can be really, really disappointed with who I am, then I'll be humble. You know, if I can hate myself enough, then I'll be humble. It's actually just another form of pride because you're just looking at yourself. I mean, the way to get humility is to stop looking at yourself and start looking at Jesus. To understand that Jesus was the one who gave up his glory in order that you would be brought into his family under his name. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, There is only one thing I know of, only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust. And that is to look at the Son of God and especially to contemplate the cross. And here's the interesting thing. When you stop looking at yourself and start looking at Jesus, you are set free. You're set free to serve one another. And that's what Paul is saying, right? To be one in the church, you have to be free from seeking your own glory and become a servant of those around you. To consider others better than yourselves. To look out for their interests. That's being a servant. Again, this unity stuff is worked out. In our relationships, it's fleshed out in the day-to-day stuff of life. In the day-to-day living and dealing with one another. In beginning to see our own pain, our own struggles, our own interests as secondary to those of those around us. It's in finding freedom to stop being so defensive and so quick to criticize everyone. And being quick to show charity 
and mercy and forgiveness and patience to others. A man named Robert McQuilkin, he was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary until 1990. He was, a, he was a, an important leader in the church, in the evangelical world. He held this distinguished and honored position. Um, he was a man who was very much in the spotlight. And his position opened many doors to the advancement of God's kingdom. And he traveled the world really proclaiming the gospel and preaching the gospel and, and, and teaching. And in 1990, he resigned to take care of his wife who had Alzheimer's. And I'm not going to give you the whole story and all the details, but it always impressed me about how this man just walked away from it all. He just walked away from the acclaim, removed himself from his honored position, how he how he really stepped out of all the public view. And he just disappeared to serve his wife. He gladly gave up his interests and his pursuits to be a servant. You know, for some people, I imagine that what Robert McQuilkin did looks like slavery from a distance. But according to the Bible, it's actually called freedom. I mean, only when you know who you are in Jesus can you find freedom to walk away from your own interests. Only then can you find freedom from this desperate need to prove that you matter and you're significant. You find freedom to become a servant. You see, that kind of freedom, it's a freedom that only the gospel can produce. A freedom that leads to oneness in the church, to unity, from stop, stopping to trying to prove that you are somebody and to live for others. Paul calls the church to unity. And being one in the church is the visible fruit of lives that are watered by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me end by saying this. Where do you start with all of this? Because not just our church, but all churches have a long way to go in this. Where do you start? It's not by looking at yourself. It's by looking at Jesus who gave up his glory in order to become a servant and give up his life that we might find our worth in him and in him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we hear your word and we, we understand how far short of your glory we fall. How far short of this call to being one with one another we fall. How we so quickly retreat into ourselves and are not involved in one another's lives. We pray that you would move us by your spirit to take an interest in one another. To see that our bonds are not superficial, but that we are bound together 
by the blood of Jesus. We ask this morning that you would set us free. That you would set us free because we know who we are in the gospel and in our union with Jesus. That it would set us free to be humble. To look out for the interests of those around us. To become servants of one another. And we do pray this morning, Father. That this unity in the church, in our church, would be a witness to the world around us. That the gospel is true, that it is genuine, that it is real and authentic. Because we understand that only the gospel can create this kind of unity among us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.